Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we push the limits of our understanding. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Lori Olford, and we're back from a brief hiatus with the holiday weekend. Uh, let me tell you, we're suffering through some serious heat in Arizona. How are you doing, Lori? I'm pretty good. And you? Good. I tell you, the weather is like violently hot. Uh, you step outside and it's like having the sun square off with you. <laughs> it's like saying, come on, let's throw down and fight. <laughs> and then it yeah. will but I mean, it's just brutal here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Arizona this time of year always makes me think of being on uh, Tatooine in Star Wars. Like it's so hot. It's it's like there are two suns in the sky. I know. I mean, I, I mean, for that matter, they actually did film some of those scenes of Tatooine right out here in Arizona. So it's seriously like you expect to see Jabba the Hutt's uh, palace, you know, as you're driving towards San Diego, that area. <laughs> All right. It's just driving along the state highway and, and there's Jabba's palace off to the side. Or or you think you're going to see one of those big Jawa sand crawlers moving around. So uh, for yeah. anyone who spent a summer in Arizona, you know that opening your front door is just like opening your oven door. <laughs> I mean, even the breeze <laughs> doesn't cool you down. I mean, even the breeze here is hot. Yeah, it's hard, even in the shade. Yeah, like it's a, uh, it's like what comes out of a hairdryer. Well, yeah. well, I mean, w- when when we do get some rain though, it it does cool down a, a little bit. A little bit, yeah, it does cool down a little bit. But uh, it's a dry heat, right? So it's no big yeah, dry heat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, we have a lot to go over today as we pick up from the previous episode where we talked about the personages of the biblical God and the biblical devil as being representations of extraterrestrial entities. Here we continue with that subject to explore how our human laws and human morals, our standards of behavior and virtue, may also have been passed on to us through these encounters with ancient alien astronauts. And these morals and these codes of ethics are obviously still here with us to this day. Right. So ancient mythology is packed full of conflicts, right? Um, they're all about gods wielding their powers against other gods or against humans or other creatures in order to bring about their rule over the earth. Or rule over something. It could be rule over Mount Olympus or Mm -hmm. kingdoms of Egypt or the islands of Japan or the entire universe. And they're Mm -hmm. trying to defeat something to achieve that dominance. Like you said, there's always a conflict. And it can be considered as a conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Many times that is the underlying theme. And the relationship amongst those in the conflict usually seems to be family, brother against brother, son against father, one house of gods against another, always something like that, right? Exactly. And the victor is the absolute victor, and the opponent is completely vanquished. Uh, the champion god is, is dominant and powerful, and, and his word becomes law. Uh, and those who are subjugated, usually that means everybody, must obey or be punished. Now, looking at the mythologies of the Middle East, where the biblical narratives take place, we see, number one, a patriarchal order that mirrors the way of life of the people who have these traditions. Of course, there is a strong matriarchal uh, component as well with mother goddesses and fertility goddesses. But the social order of the people falls in line with the hierarchy of of their ruling classes of kings and queens and those of lesser status, but who are still important. And and then all of the plain old commoners. And, and this setup is transferred to the world of the gods. And number two, we see the will of the gods being communicated to everyone via select individuals, whether it be prophets, seers, and shamans. Now, interestingly, uh, Sigmund Freud expounded a great deal on the idea of God as a mental construct in his works, uh, Moses and Monotheism and Totem and Taboo. And according to what he formulates, uh, the concept of deity comes from his psychoanalytic theory on what is called the parental imago, uh, which is an unconscious image that is the impressions fathers and mothers leave on our psyches in our early childhood form the notion of godly figures. Of course, he proposes that later on in our social and intellectual development, this imago is reintroduced and retaught as a a dogma of religion. Now, he claims that the sort of moral law and moral restriction, which is what he calls religion, uh, under which we form such impressions in early life are handed down to us 
in the form of a drive. Uh, and that drive stems from mental images of a primordial father and a totem meal, both of which go far back uh, to our prehistoric ancestry, and they represent obedience and atonement. So without going way into a deep lecture in analytical psychology or meta-ethics, uh, what Freud is saying is that people have been living by rules for quite some time. And when those rules are broken, something has to be done to make it right again in the eyes of the deities. And he, he went on to explain that these gods are figures formed with our unconscious minds. And the, the religious beliefs we carry on today uh, from this inner drive to satisfy our human needs in a way that doesn't compromise our consciousses. Um, so this, this was a rather popular model back in Freud's time, uh, which we see echoed by philosophers such as Hegel and, and Nietzsche, uh, that being the same guy who said that God is dead. Uh, Freud even went as far as to say that the idea of a savior such as Jesus Christ was a manifestation of collective guilt uh, re repressed within the minds of the Jewish people who he suggested murdered Moses as their distant and primordial father. Now, uh, Dean Hammer uh, elaborates on this concept, but steers away from the whole psychoanalytic theory of repressed and sublimated uh, memories of the conscience of guilt and totem meals, that sort of thing. Instead, he postulates in his book, uh, The God Gene, how faith is hardwired into our genes, that evolutionary biology is what gives us our inclination for spiritual beliefs. He even identified that gene uh, that is responsible for this characteristic tendency uh, that we have in us as the secular monomine transporter number two, or BMAT2. Uh, so what does all this jargon really mean? Nothing more than that the notion of God or of notion of a God or of higher powers and our desire to connect with it or to them through commemorative rituals, such as we have with food in the form of sacrifice, uh, is part of our genetic makeup and has been psychologically infused into our minds since the dawn of time. This makes sense if we were to consider us as being made in their image. Um, we would expect to have an innate propensity to believe in them as our creators because that is how they would have us made to be wanting us to seek and follow them right um well, we see that their affairs and their rules are, are problematic in how they behave and and relate with one another and us uh, take for instance how we find in the ugaritic text that yahweh was mentioned being a son of an even greater deity named elion who gave nations as inheritances to his many sons and this is how israel became assigned to yahweh now, El Elyon ordered this to the other gods, and this explains why Yahweh slash Inki slash Utushamish later proclaimed in the Ten Commandments, and you shall not have any other gods before me. So this is reiterated, as we pointed uh, out last time in the last episode, in Psalms 89, verses 6 through 7. And I'll read it right here. It says, uh, for who in the skies above can compare with the Lord Yahweh, who is like the Lord Yahweh among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. Now, we already asked, you know, what is this council of, of holy ones? And within Christianity, it may be regarded as the heavenly hosts, all of the angels and saints who may, who may reside in heaven. Yet within the theology of the neighboring people of, of Israel, a council of holy ones is exactly what we find. So one of the gods in the council of the holy ones was Hutushamish, a lawgiver. And I'll I'll elaborate a little more about him in just a moment, but um, the so-called pagans of the time were polytheistic with one patriarch and one matriarch who were at the top of the hierarchy. Um, there was no democracy among these gods. Um, they all had their jobs to do, and they were subservient to the one or ones who were known as the most high. Now, just as in human politics, this caused problems in ego, loyalty, alliance and power as we see in all of the mythologies the gods do not get along so well just as people do not get along so well so the world of the gods is very much similar emotionally and socially to the world of people and that's where we get that we are in their image and after their likeness right yeah uh, 
there, there are no democratic processes that we see in these pantheons. The, the realm of the gods seems to be mostly like a monarchy with king and queen, you know, father and mother deities, and the others who serve and advise them in a, a, myriad, a myriad of capacities. Uh, and there are certainly egos, uh, big egos. And in this respect, monotheism becomes the ultimate rule for a god with a group of people uh, whose identity uh, is that they believe they are set aside for a special purpose. Uh, that is a theme within the Tanakh. The people of Israel are chosen by God to be his nation based on his covenant with them. Uh, as is said in passages like Genesis 17, 7, Exodus 6, 7, Ezekiel 34, 24, and 36, 28, and Jeremiah 7, 23, and 30, 22, and 31, 33. They saw themselves as separate and different and unique from the others, so their God is also separate and different and unique. Now, strangely, Yahweh becomes less anthropomorphic in Judaism instead of more so, as that was the case with the pagan gods. Uh, his appearance to Moses in the burning bush begins a scriptural narrative of him having a more abstract image, uh, one in which human eyes are not able to look upon and whose name is too holy to speak, uh, a tetragrammaton uh, of W-H-Y-H, Yahweh, yet he continues to exhibit a will, a self-image, and meta-awareness, that is, being aware of being aware. Now, as we pointed out in our third episode, the scriptures and ancient texts describe us as being created in the images of the divine beings, God or the gods, and we see that there uh, are these stark similarities in how we behave and how they are said to behave. And there is jealousy, anger, vengeance, sorrow, pleasure, etc. If we as flesh and blooded beings act and conduct ourselves in these manners, then surely we'd expect the same characteristics of those from whom we were modeled. And that is precisely what we see in the traditions of these divine ones. The gods are acting like this uh, interacting like us because they are like us, albeit more advanced, but flesh and blood nonetheless, and they they behave as such. And oddly enough, it seems that the founding fathers of the United States knew of this through what they called providence. And they believed that principles are perfect and that flesh and blood authority is not. Uh, they went as far as to provide a sort of thesis statement in the preamble of the, of the Constitution that showed they envisioned a utopian type civilization. Uh, it mentions about them forming a more perfect union, establishing justice, ensuring domestic tranquility, promoting general welfare and securing liberty. So it appeared that their thinking was very much immersed in a philosophy of law that was meant to bring about the betterment of humanity through ideas instead of dogmas. Now, when it comes to the legal systems, the Code of Hammurabi is probably the oldest document depicting Yutu Shamish giving the law to Hammurabi the king. Now, the Ten Commandments came much, much later by the claim it was given to Moses by Yahweh on Mount Sinai. While the basis of the two are much the same, the Code of Hammurabi is, much is more comprehensive um, with a long preamble of how the strong should not be the oppressor to the weak. And to that, justice is provided to orphans and, and widows. So you've heard my, my reasons from our last episode as to why I believe Yahweh is Enki. Um, I, I think the evidence points to that. However, uh, it also points to Yutu Shamish. Uh, he is a lawgiver as well as a god of morality and truth and has dominion of the sun. Now, there is also some resemblance of Yahweh to Enlil, who was known as the Lord of the Command and is acclaimed to have separated the waters from the earth and set the constellations in their places. Now, Enlil was also a disciplinary god, which is also similar to the description of Yahweh. So this is how we see that there are at least at least three Babylonian slash Sumerian gods described within the Jewish Tanakh. Now, while Yahweh could very well have been a, a synchronistic version of Enki, um, he could also have been interpreted as Yutu Shamish, Shamesh, giving laws to his people, known as the sun god, and referred to as the god of justice and of love and compassion. 
And this sounds very similar to Yahweh as we see in Deuteronomy 10, uh, 14, and verse 27. But we also see this in Psalm 68 and, six, and 82 and 146. And then Isaiah 1 and 10, and then James 3, 2 to 12, with the importance said for the care and the widows, uh, for the widows and the, and the orphans. Uh, so it's like the same. And of course, he could also have been inky. It's, uh, so it's, it's not easy to be uh, succinct with their kind of identification. But consider what is said in Psalms 104 and verses 16 to 18. So it says, the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he had planted. Now, this is very interesting because in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Yutu Shamish is asked to help Gilgamesh because he is within the cedar forest of Lebanon. And Yutu Shamish knows them well. Well, of course he knows them well, because as the Bible says, he planted them. So it's difficult to be uh, absolutely convinced about who Yahweh really was because of the Bible is so extensively paraphrased. And it is difficult to find a consistent label by which to apply to Yahweh. So this means that the Bible com combined or at least confused the personalities of at least three deities as being Yahweh. It was Enlil, Inki, and Yutu Shamish. Mm -hmm. yeah, well said. And, and as with uh, many other scriptural themes, uh, the, the Ten Commandments really does seem to be uh, like a condensed version of a legal code. Um, but the Torah as a whole, as well as the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the Jews, is a more codified system of Levitical law that more closely resembles Hammurabi. Um, there are 613 laws under rabbinical Judaism. So with law, there are not only statutes, but rules of procedure, rules of evidence, processes of examination, and penalties under justice. And as the centuries go by, these all become more and more politically and socially integrated. Uh, consider the Tang Code of China that was derived in the 7th century AD, and it uh, formed a legal system that combined parts similar not only to Hammurabi, but also to Confucius, and in, a, in the way of humanism and social harmony. We also see the lengths that uh, Roman law and English common law go into defining crimes and codifying just penalties to be administered, of course, Freemasonry went even further to expound on natural law that deviated somewhat from the ancient legal codes, yet it was uh, still theistically and idealistically centered in the principles of the rights of humans and the accountability to the all-seeing eye of providence, as you alluded to earlier. So it seems the, that the more time uh, has passed from when the gods ruled us, that the systems of laws became more advanced less about appeasing them. And ironically, that may be because we have evolved since the time to become more like them, uh, i.e. wiser and more knowledgeable and less prone to misunderstandings about our world. So while most uh, are familiar with the impact of the Mosaic law in our societies, we also know that it is uh, too facile for a pluralistic civilization. So therefore, codified statutes uh, needed to be enacted as well as enforced, ones that apply rational mor morality as its foundation. And let's face it, we see this in many parts of the world um, today and, and have so for at least a couple hundred years. Yeah, and I mean, no matter how you look at it, laws, reasonable and just laws, of course, are needed for the human race to progress. So they are given so as to keep us civilized and orderly. Uh, along with their implementation is the belief of good versus evil, such as with God, uh, put one more O in there, you have good, and then the devil, take away the D, and you have evil. So obeying the law meant you were good, breaking the law meant that you were bad. This is a very basic principle that carries on to this day fully and completely. Now, if we are to believe the gods of our religions are flesh and blood alien beings, then the laws they gave us are indeed extraterrestrial laws. If you have some whiskey nearby, you might want to take a sip for what I'm about to say next. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. So we will, the humans, will one day do the same to a lower indigenous species on a planet that we will discover. 
just as just as the uh, Anunnaki discovered us. We will descend far into the future in spacecraft down from the sky of that world, and the human astronauts will be the gods descending. We will become the Enlils, the Inkis, the Anadas, the Zeus, the Poseidons, um, the Yahwehs from a heavenly realm that they will call Earth. We may even have some astronauts who think that humans are similar to those indigenous beings and think that they're compatible and we'll give it a shot and we'll mate with them, um, becoming like the watchers in you know the Genesis 6 story uh, to teach them how to rise and progress into a great civilization on their planet. And as gods did for us, so too will we do for them and instruct them to follow the laws that we will now give them. But hopefully we will achieve that someday a, uh, in, in the future, a civilization like we see on Star Trek. Of course, anyone who is familiar with the movies and the TV shows knows uh, about what is referred to as the prime directive, not to interfere with an indigenous population. So if indeed there is a federation of planets like that out there, then I'm sure the Anunnaki uh, was in clear violation in how they interacted with us. Who knows? Uh, perhaps such as a federation ostracized them 300,000 years ago uh, because of what they did. And the question then becomes, I mean, would we do the same, though, if we were in their position? Yeah, definitely a, a very pr profound thing to contemplate there. Uh, hmm. Now, like we've said, there is a parallel document. Um, just as, uh, switch this topic on uh, uh, you know, the, the, the scriptures here. And the list of the patriarchs who, who lived before the flood, uh, as found in chapter 5 of, of Genesis, uh, there are 10 generations mentioned between Adam and Noah, uh, that being eight patriarchs that are between the two of them. Uh, there is something called the Sumerian Kings List. Uh, it's given as a cuneiform inscription upon a tablet uh, known as the Veld Blundell Prism, uh, which was found in 1922 near the ruins of Larsa. Um, it's uh, on display in the Ashmolane Museum in Oxford, England, and it mentions eight rulers who reigned before the flood. So the similarities between these two lists is almost uncanny. Yeah, and it appears that Genesis was written separately from uh, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy as the authors of the Pentateuch were creating the scriptures by condensing older Abrahamic tradition found within the Babylonian myths, um, they also took the names and transformed them into Hebrew ones. Hence, the eight antediluvian kings became the eight out of ten pa uh, biblical patriarchs. Uh, Ubera Tutu was the father of Hupnapishtim, which was Lamech and Noah. Now, Abirami becomes the personage of uh, Moses, along with another entangled story from that of Sargon of Akkad, or Akkad, a Sumerian ruler who was set adrift down the Euphrates, Euphrates River in a basket. Does that sound familiar? Um, it is the Moses story, of course, with differences in names and places. So there's plenty of proof that, that uh, most of the important stories of the Bible are retold from older ones, which in turn, are retold from older ones when our alien ancestors were present on the earth. Hmm. Yeah, now, so um, we just want to take a moment to make sure everyone is clear with the differences of these names. We've been, we've been saying a lot of them, uh, like Sumerian, Mesopotamian, and Babylonian. Um, so I'm going to give a brief description here, uh, like a thumbnail sketch of it. So Mesopotamia is merely the name of the region of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's Greek for land between the rivers. It is modern-day Iraq. Uh, Sumer is the civilization of the city-state located in the southern part of Mesopotamia, and it controlled the region from roughly uh, 4500 to 1900 BC. Akkad is a city-state more to the north of Sumer, and their empire was around uh, was in existence around between 2300 to 2100 BC at that time when Sumer was in its decline. The Akkadians brought together the city-states of Babylon, which was to its south, and Ashur, which was to its north. Now, the Akkadian language was Semitic, and that means it was similar to Hebrew, uh, whereas the Sumerian language was not. Uh, now, right around 
1900 BC, the Akkadian Empire split into the Assyrian Empire to the north with the city-states of Ashur, Nineveh, and Dur-Sirakun, and the Babylonian Empire to the south with the city-states of Babylon, Eridu, and Ur. Both of these civilizations continued with the Akkadian language and went through periods of decline and resurgence until about the 6th through 5th centuries BC when they were conquered by the Persians, then later the Greeks, then later the Romans. Now, this oversimplifies it. Uh, there were other empires in Mesopotamia as well, like the Mitannis, the Hurrians, and the Elamites. But this is a sort of thumbnail sketch. Um, Sumerian first, then Akkadian, and then Babylonian and Assyrian. So that just kind of sums it up real briefly. So it's kind of clear on, on the differences here. So now when we talk about the gods, one of the traits that uh, they're usually said to possess is immortality. Uh, they don't experience death. This is certainly how the God of the Bible was presented, and it is how the pagan gods are described. They live forever as eternal and everlasting. So if these God figures of the past are merely alien beings from another planet, are we to believe that they likewise live forever? Um, and to answer that question, we have to look at what is perceived as immortality. So consider the lifespan of a housefly. It's about 30 days on average from egg to adult. To a fly, our lifespan of 840 times the 30-day lifetime would make us seem immortal. We exist throughout thousands of generations of flies, and, and surely uh, if flies were able to write legends and mythology, then they would say uh, that about any one of us, uh, that we are eternal and everlasting creatures, even though we are not. We're simple, we have a much longer lifespan than they do. Uh, even the lifespan of, say, dogs and cats of about 12 to 15 years are much sh shorter than ours. So to them, we seem to exist long past the time when their offspring would have offspring and then so on and so on, thus making us seem like we live on forever. They perceive us as immortal. Uh, so con considering this, uh, what would the lifespan of an ET from a planet who's one year uh, that is one orbital revolution around the sun is the time it takes 3600 uh, takes earth 3600 times to do the same so a year for them would be 3600 years for us and if they have the same average lifespan as as us with say uh, 70 of their years that would be 252000 of our years so to us um, they would definitely seem to live forever and never die as generation after generation of us would pass away uh, with them still being around so uh, do we find any record where there, it is told that uh, there were such beings that had extraordinarily long lifespans the answer is yes we we do indeed with the list of the antediluvial uh patriarchs in genesis 5 where lifespans are given in hundreds of years and with the Sumerian kings list, where the monarchical reigns that are given are not just in hundreds or thousands of years, but in tens of thousands of years. Uh, clearly, there was a belief that these gods, patriarchs, kings, whatever you want to call them, were nearly immortal with such long lifespans. And we also uh, see that the idea of beings falling from heaven, falling from the sky or from outer space seems to come from this same era in which Mesopotamian mythologies are said to be taking place. The oral traditions of Judaism come straight from this. And when you really think about it, it is the basis of Christianity. It's because of these fallen ones that mankind needs to be redeemed and, and made right again with God the Creator as their leader. Uh, Satan attempts Adam and, and Eve in the garden and brings about the fall. And, and, and that's what brings sin into the world and separation from that God. And Jesus is sent to bring salvation. So the account of Satan is paralleled in the Babylonian myth of Marduk, who also wanted to be the supreme god. And he is later said to have become Babylon's king after he fought a war against the Anunnaki in a sky battle. Now, the Satan, the Satan that we know of today uh, would have to be Yahweh's son. If Yahweh is equivalent to Enki, that son would then be Marduk or raw to the Egyptians. An interesting bit of information to know about Marduk is that according to Sitchin, 
and well, he's dead. Um, in his second book, The Stairway to Heaven, he talks about how Alexander the Great goes on this um, quest to find immortality. He searches for his real father, who he finds out is the god Ra, a.k.a. Marduk in Babylon. However, when Alexander came face to face with his father, um, he later saw that he was dead and embalmed. And he realized then that the way he will become immortal is by becoming a legend and being remembered for thousands and thousands of years. Right. It was uh, Herodotus who actually wrote that legend about Alexander the Great being the son mm -hmm. of a god. The oracle of Delphi foretold his life and revealed that Philip II of Macedonia was said to not be his true father. Alexander's mother, Olympias, had a strained relationship with Philip which made Alexander suspicious that he was uh, really the son of the Egyptian god Ammon. A bit later, it becomes uh, interpreted as Ra, who is also Marduk. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you cover this in your book, Laurie, about uh, offerings to the gods, specifically burnt offerings where the people are commanded to sacrifice food. Uh, sometimes grains and fruits are given and burnt. Uh, oftentimes it is meat in the form of animal sacrifice. Um, in some more grisly cases, there are stories of human sacrifice. Um, there is also libation, the pouring out of wine or other drink. These acts are done very ritualistically involving an altar, that a table, or else something um, specially else, something else, some specially designed object. Uh, and indeed, the whole activity surrounding it seems to be about uh, meal preparation, eating and drinking. So, you know, why dinner? Well, we need to eat, and we like to eat. Uh, what about God? Does he? Uh, of course, Freud examined the symbolism represented in this uh, from the prehistoric totem meal, as I mentioned earlier. The importance of food was so deeply embedded into the minds of people uh, because it pleases and satisfies, and that is the central act that we do to stay alive. So mm -hmm. many anthropologists have postulated the cultural importance of sharing food among groups of people. You know, the ritual of breaking bread with one another uh, has been an essential part of our survival as a group. It's uh, what brought people together and kept them together. It's really nothing that mysterious. I mean, we all do it today when we have meals with our families and friends, you know, sharing in the act of eating and drinking um, is one of the most important things we do in the way of socially bonding with each other. So the religious facet to this ritual, as anyone who's uh, ever attended a Catholic mass can attest, is loaded with spiritual symbolism, with altars, priests, consecration, sacrifice, body and blood. Uh, it all harkens back to Freud's totem meal. Things are made right again in the sharing of food uh, as it satisfies our basic need. And we sacrifice it, give it up with special preparation as a way to please the gods. We only hope that we are not the food that they want, which is what we have with human sacrifices, right? Mm -hmm. um, you claim uh, that this ritual of food and drink is proof positive that the gods are indeed flesh and blood because it shows that they have to eat, just like we do. Mm -hmm. uh, now, any pastor or clergy will point out that the, these sacrifices and offerings are not literal meals okay they're they're acts that represent atonement and reconciliation and reestablishing favor with god many well-known evangelists uh, billy graham oral roberts charles swindoll and, and others have have all alluded to how the hebrew sacrifices in the old testament were how people's sins were redeemed in the eyes of god until that final sacrifice uh, was made a human sacrifice when uh, Jesus died on the cross. Um, this was how humans were forgiven for not following precepts, and not just by Yahweh, but by any of the deities. This was one of the penalties or penitential uh, acts that the people had to do so as to once again be on good terms with the gods, sort of like how it says in Leviticus 1, uh, 1 through 9, that these offerings are an aroma pleasing to the Lord, meaning he is satisfied and no longer angry with the sins of the people. I mean, how do you not forgive someone when they brought you food prepared in your favorite, favorite way, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, again, we have another human-like uh, 
uh, characteristic of finding the aroma of burning meat to be pleasing. Um, there's something very interesting in, in reference to Yahweh. Uh, he tells Moses in Exodus 32, 9 and 10, that the Hebrews were, were stiff-necked people. Then he tells Moses to leave him alone so his wrath may come against them and consume them. Now, here we have God getting angry, a physical emotion, and he told a mortal human to not stop him. What? Like, uh, but as we read later, Moses did stop him. He had to remind God of his oath and promise to the forefathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. God's not just angry. I mean, he's consumed with fury to the point where he can't even think or see straight. Uh, and this exactly. is the first or only time that this happens where he becomes like Magneto and the X-Men and just wants to blast everything away. Uh, he's not kidding here. The Bible and ancient mythology definitely describe these gods as uh, very emotional. And again, just like how people are very emotional. Yep. Um, now get this. In verse 14 of that same chapter, it reads, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. I mean, say what? <laughs> God God thought of evil and had to repent? Come on. You see, this is a perfect example of the characteristics of Yahweh matching that of a flesh and blood being. Yeah, like Magneto or some other Marvel Comics Avenger. I mean, how does God even possess an evil thought, right? Right. Like, yeah, like I mean, theology or theologically speaking, um, it's it's not supposed to be even possible. Now, in reference, uh, what you said about the sacrifices under the Levitical law, the way in which these procedures or uh, rituals were completed definitely shows me that these sacrificial offerings were none other than food preparations for the gods. In Exodus twenty-seven. Yahweh gave plans to Moses to build an altar with pans and utensils and build an altar with pans and utensils mm -hmm. uh, in numbers 28 two to six. He says, command the children of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my offerings made by fire as a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. A point of time, like as in what, uh, lunch and dinner times? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at how the preparation is described in Genesis 29, uh, 38 to 40. Uh, offer one lamb in the morning and the other in the evening before dark. In the morning, when you offer the first lamb, uh, offer also two quarts of fine flour mixed with one quart of oil from pressed olives. Pour, pour out a quart of wine as a drink offering. Um, <laughs> in other chapters, God requires grain offerings that are either to be baked in an oven, fried in a pan, or cooked and seasoned with salt. I mean, come on. Yeah, and this gets expanded even more uh, in Exodus 29, uh, 1 to 27. Uh, he gives specific instructions for the consecration that involves how the meat is to be cut and washed and how the blood and pieces are to be put onto the altar. In Leviticus 11, 3 through 45, he catalogs animals that are acceptable and ones that are unacceptable for eating. In Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 15, he emphasizes the demand to give him praise when the people have eaten and are satisfied. So in addition to precepts uh, pertaining to how they are to conduct their lives, uh, God puts a high importance on what they eat and, more importantly, what they offer him to eat. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel even wrote in chapter 44, verses 15 and 16 about the Levites in the kitchens of, of God in the temple, <laughs> kitchens of God in the temple, saying, only they may come near my table to serve me. So there you have it, serving him at his table after preparing his food. I mean, you're right about these uh, feasts being mentioned throughout the Bible, Joe, uh, including even after the, uh, the judgment, right? In uh, what, Revelation 19, um, with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, showing not only that there is a social bond, but a spiritual bond, a contract, if you will. So when people share food with one another in the form of, the, of sacrifice, it, it is something deeply rooted in our religious expression. It, it becomes the whole symbol of a covenant. Yes, food is uh, very important in religion. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, realize how important. So the, the breaking of bread in the presence of others, much like the totem meal talked about by Freud, uh, we we uh, brought in. We've talked about this in, in a previous episode um, that many religious thinkers have hypothesized on the multiple forms and presentations, not only in polytheism but also in monotheism, with there being more than one type of manifestation of the one God. Okay, so different sects have portrayed different doctrines about his true uh, nature and identity. And they're often contradictory and inconsistent. Uh, it is very apparent to see that the God moving through the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day is not the same as the one who descends to the Tower of Babel to confuse the people's language. Uh, the one who walks up to Abraham at Mamer is not the same one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And the one who occupied the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple is not the same one who had a son that he sent in human form. Uh, many of the early Christians could see this, as they could see the, the Jewish scribes and rabbis who wrote and uh, comment and the, commented um, on the Tanakh. Um, and they could also see, see it in, in the way of such philosophers like Plato, Zeno, and Mani. The god of monotheistic traditions always seem to have these multiple personalities that are sort of stitched together into the conglomeration of scriptural writings. And this raises the question, is there really just one God in the Bible? That kind of sums it all up. Is there really just one God in the Bible? The answer seems to be no. Uh, Just from the Pentateuch, we find descriptions of what can only be seen as different entities altogether. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Exodus 33, 9, Moses enters the tabernacle and a pillar of cloud descends and hovers uh, at the door and the Lord speaks to Moses. Now, in verse 11, it says that the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So here we have the creator of the universe, the one who created our sun and our earth. He's now crammed into a tiny cloud and standing in front of a doorway, talking face to face with a human being. See, this to me is astounding to conceptualize. And it seems that this being is a life form. From another planet. This is where the contradiction occurs, though. Uh, several verses later in verse 20, after Moses asked to see God's glory, Yahweh tells him that no one can see him face to face, or they would die after seeing him. Well, that's not what verse 11 says, what we just read. Uh, I mean, 70 elders saw him and lived after they ate and drank with him after he descended on Mount Sinai, right? Right. Um, yeah, and then back in Genesis, Sarah. Uh, laughs at him and lied to his face and she still lived and bore a son yeah it's loaded the scriptures are loaded with uh, contradictions and inconsistencies we, we can't forget how in uh, Genesis uh, Adam and Eve they're in the presence uh, in, of, they're in, uh, of God uh, they're in his presence in the garden of Eden during the cool of the day uh, as, as well as Enoch who, who walked with God in Genesis 5 22 to 24, and Jacob in Genesis 32, 24 uh, through 30, yeah, he wrestles with God, and he actually gets the upper hand in the fight. Um, and, <laughs> and then, I don't know how does that happen. How do you how do you get God pinned in a wrestling match? Um, and then there is Elijah in First Kings 19, 11 through 18, where he stands upon a mountain while God passes by, and of course uh, Job 38, 1, where he appears in uh, from within a storm to begin launching a barrage of questions, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, so Bible scholars such as uh, Thomas Thompson uh, suggest that the patriarchal narratives were written in the sixth to fifth centuries BC and that they are unreliable and that they are based off reconstructed sources from earlier periods. In fact, he narrated, uh, the narratives we have today most likely came from the imagination of the past in order to promote hope. Uh, This uh, actually makes sense in explaining the misconstrued attempts by uh, the Hebrews when writing about the gods of their Babylonian captors, as these three gods, Yutu, Shemesh, Enki, and Enlil, uh, become combined with the stories of Yahweh. So this becomes apparent to modern readers as literary description or discrepancies. Now, another problem with the scriptural 
scriptural narrative is the lack of archaeological evidence to even support the existence of such figures as Jacob, Moses, and or David, or really just about any of them. Now, prior to the Babylonian captivity, we find very little in reference to them outside of the biblical text. So again, we must refer to the original source, the Sumerian slash Akkadian Babylonian source, where Yutu Shamish presents his laws, the Code of Amurabi. Now, the texts of these laws are found on a seven-foot diorite steel that dates to 1750 BC and is currently on display in the Louvre in Paris. Uh, there is a depiction of the uh, at the top picturing the god Shamish presenting the laws to King Amurabi. It's also written that Anu and Enlil ordained Amurabi, uh, a, devite, a, a devout prince, who fears the gods to demonstrate justice within the land, to destroy evil and wickedness, to stop the mighty exploiting the weak, to rise like Shamish over the mass of humanity, illuminating the land. Uh, yes, the famous Louvre stale, uh, discovered in 1901 in Iran. Unfortunately, we have never recovered a tablet with the Ten Commandments uh, nope. that dates to that time period of Moses and the Exodus. Um, very unfortunate. Of course, uh, the original tablets were supposedly uh, put into the Ark of the Covenant, which has never been found. And archaeologically speaking, we have uh, proof of the Babylonian account, but none for the biblical account. And this, this point gives more credence to the Code of Amurabi being the more authentic tradition of legal and uh, judicial thinking among the ancients. Um, I think this illustrates uh, these set of laws was around uh, long before the Jewish scribes wrote out the Torah, and and that greatly condensed it, and that they greatly condensed it down to be applicable to their way of religion, their politics, and social customs. In other words, to fit their own narrative. Exactly, and uh, of course, human government and conventions have changed from one form to another over the centuries through our intellect and our predisposition toward uh, philosophical morality. We strive to bring about the greater good, whether or not we actually achieve that and achieve it with the minimal amount of suffering is always in doubt, um, as it always will be, right? Um, mm -hmm. We shifted from absolute monarchy on one extreme to constitutional democracy on the other. But the foundation of all of them is the power to create laws and to demand obedience of people to abide by those laws. And our religions see that authority for government to rule people comes from a divine source or a divine will of some kind. Of course, we have such references made in the, uh, the Old Testament with God anointing kings, uh, as, as with Saul in, in 1 Samuel 8, 19-22. Uh, and these kings are to represent him to the people of Israel, the pharaohs of Egypt uh, were seen not only as representatives, but one and the same as the gods. Also, Jesus in the New Testament, um, it says the rulers of earth exist to manage the affairs of men. And he has famously said in Matthew 22, 21, to render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God uh, that which belongs to God. And Paul the Apostle claims in Romans 13, 1 through 14, that all authority on earth is instituted by God, saying that we must obey, must allow ourselves uh, to be subjected to authority uh, as the powers that are or to be are indeed ordained by God, going as far as to say that whoever resists will receive damnation. Pretty stiff. Yeah. Uh, well, when it comes down to it, laws are or laws were implemented for the betterment of civilization. It, it's what keeps us separate from the animals, right? Um, without law and order, we will have nothing but total chaos and anarchy. Our civilization cannot be trusted to proceed on this journey without this this form of orderly structure. Well, not at least, well, not yet at least. Um, and and what good are laws if there are no law enforcement? So just as the gods selected certain uh, human bloodlines to rule as kings and pharaohs upon the earth, now after this they left and returned to their home world. Uh, human kings were now left to govern on the affairs of men. Uh, on, on behalf of the gods. So instead of looking at uh, something like the Ten Commandments as a bunch of crazy religious stuff and fairy tales, maybe you know, it would be better to look at them as precepts 
from another world uh, given to us to help us evolve. And instead of thinking of Yahweh or, or Enlil or Yutu Shamish as deities, maybe it would be better to think of them as, you know, our extraterrestrial teachers. A very good point. And it could very well be that it is through our progress as a wondrous created species that we learn how to improve the way we govern and rule to fit the needs of our societies throughout the different ages and in different places in the world. And perhaps it is through the abilities of our minds that we give the greatest tribute to our alien makers. So uh, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, next week, we're going to closely examine something that we mentioned just a few minutes ago, and it could easily be considered a piece of ancient technology. And that being one that's completely misunderstood, uh, mystified, uh, miscommunicated, uh, as we find in the biblical narrative, and that being the Ark of the Covenant. Yep, that's uh, something that has otherworldly object written all over it. Sure does. Um, mm-hmm. if, uh, if only we could find it. <laughs> the, yeah. the tales of the Ark of the Covenant seem to just drop off the pages of history. The, the Bible becomes strangely silent about, uh, about it halfway through the Old Testament. Uh, it then becomes like it was never there at all. Um, but what is said about it makes you wonder, was it uh, some kind of alien apparatus uh, more so than something, you know, supernatural? Yeah, yeah. We, something to ponder about. Definitely something worthy of discussion. So yeah, we look forward to getting more into that next week. Uh, until then, folks, stay safe, stay peaceful, and most of all, stay curious. Bye, everyone. See you later, everyone.